chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. You know, as we come to the end of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, we see that Paul is concerned here to leave uh, the Christians at Thessalonica with a picture of a gospel church. In particular, Paul wants to show these Christians, and when I say Christians, I'm meaning uh, these Thessalonian Christians as well as us today, how we should conduct ourselves together as Christians in the community of the church. Uh, beginning in verse 12 all the way through verse 28. Now don't panic, I'm not going to do all of those verses today. Uh, Paul turns his attention mainly to life within the church. In verse 12, if you're, if you've been, if you're looking there and you're reading ahead, verse 12, verse 14, verse 25, verse 26, and verse 27, Paul addresses these Christians as what? Brothers. The idea behind this word, as we've discussed in the past, is that the church is to be thought of as a family. And that we treat each other as family. And the inside joke here for us is even what? The weird uncles that we may have. We treat them as family. And even those within our own body of believers here sometimes we have. And we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. Uh, and so, uh, this section 12 through 28 is not just a list of do's and don'ts. But this section is gospel life. How we live life in the gospel. The way brothers and sisters should live together in the church because we've been united to Christ. There's something special about the people of God. Not that we're special and superior to people, but we know Christ. We're united to Him through the gospel. So there's something special about the relationship that we have with Christ which should pour over into our relationship in the church. Paul is showing us that this is what life should look like in the church because of the gospel. These things that we're going to look at today, Paul is saying because of the gospel, because you're believers, you're a family, and because you're believers and family, this is what life should look like among you. He gives us, if you will, uh, family guidelines for the congregation. That's sort of what I want to call it. Family guidelines for the congregation. So the main idea that Paul is expressing to us here this morning, I think, is the evidence of a gospel church. So if you're looking for the main idea, the, the main point, it is this, the evidence of a gospel church. The evidence of a gospel church. Now, I'm, uh, I've outlined this, and I'm going to give that to you. There's two points here. The evidence of a gospel church is seen in verses 12 through 13 in how you relate to your pastor. Now, let me go ahead and tell you, I've had a tough time this week reading this and going... Really, Lord, I, I'm, I must preach this to my congregation, tell them how they're supposed to respond to me, how they're supposed to treat me. That's, that's sort of hard to do. But it's in God's Word, and we can't jump over to go around it, so we're going to deal with it. So the evidence of the gospel church is seen, number one, in verses 12 through 13, in how you relate to your pastor or pastors. In verses 14 through 15, the evidence of a gospel church is seen in how you relate to different kinds of church members. How you relate to different kinds of church members. Alright? Verse 12, Paul says, We ask you, brothers. Notice once again, Paul calls the believers at Thessalonica what? Brothers. And you may be saying, Alright, here we go again. We're going to talk about this word, brothers. Now, the pastor's going to talk about this. You would be right. I'm going to talk about this again for just a brief moment. For Paul, the word brother is a wonderful picture of how the gospel brought himself, Paul, a Jew, into relationship with Gentiles. If you've studied and read your Bible and read commentaries and read extra-biblical literature, you see that Jew and Gentile were sort of like what? Oil and water. They didn't get along. But Paul, a Jew, a very devout Jew, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, is calling these Gentiles what? 
brothers. The word brothers for us today a wonderful picture of how the gospel has brought you and I together. And for that reason, we're to be a gospel church. That's what Paul is telling us here. To make sure that we're on the same page, uh, I don't want to ever assume anything. To make sure that we're all on the same page, the gospel church is a church in which its members realize that God is the creator and we owe him worship. And we realize that we've sinned against God and we deserve his judgment for our sin. And we realize that Jesus, God's son, is the only savior from sin. He's the savior because he is God and he came to die in our place. He died for our sins and rose again from the dead that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God from whom our sin separates us. And we recognize that repentance from sin and faith in Jesus alone is the response that God's Word calls us to make in relation to the gospel. We realize that when we respond in such a way that we have new life free from sin. That's the gospel. That's what's brought you and I together into the church. The good news, this gospel is what brings us together as a church. It's what makes us a family. This gospel shapes our lives as a church and it affects our lives within the congregation. The gospel should have an effect on our lives together. And one way in particular it affects us is that it makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. If we never, when we get done with 1 Thessalonians, if you can remember we're brothers and sisters in Christ, I'll be, I'll be greatly pleased that you understand how important that term is. The gospel makes us family. The gospel describes what the church is supposed to be. So we want to be a gospel-shaped church. We want to be family. Red Blood Baptist Church, believers, repenting and trusting in Christ. We want to be family and treat one another's family. Even what? The weird uncles that we may have. We want to treat them as family in the family of God. For those of you visiting, don't misunderstand me. I don't, I'm not saying we have weird uncles. That's just an inside joke for us here at Red Bud that we, we sort of get the point across. As a gospel church, as a family, we demonstrate that we belong to God and His church by the graces of the Christian life that are seen within us. And we do that in particular, and I would even say we do it most importantly in how we love one another. You want to know if a church is a gospel church, you look and watch and see how people demonstrate love toward one another. All of what we see in this passage has to do with the application of Christian love. How you relate to your pastors and how you relate to different members in the congregation. Love is the evidence of being a gospel church. If there's no love in the church, guess what's missing? The gospel. You can't claim to be a gospel church if love for people is missing. The evidence of being a gospel church, look at verse 12 and 13, is seen in how you relate to your pastors. Again, this is going to be difficult for me, so you bear with me. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. First, Paul shows us the application of love here with respect to how people relate to their leadership and their pastors. Paul says, respect them, esteem them, and love those pastors who do what? Labor and lead and help you to learn or admonish. And I want to say this at this point in time. Thank you, Red Bud Baptist Church, for how you respect and esteem and for how you love me. I'm a blessed pastor. And I don't want you to think in any way that anything I'm saying and pointing out to you what Paul is saying here, that that doesn't take place here. I am grateful to God. And I just want to take just a second here. I was sitting with some pastors recently and... Um, 
one was talking to me in particular directly, and he was, he was saying, this and this is happening at my church. And he looked at me and said, does that happen with you? And I was like, no. And he asked another question, said, does that happen with you? And I said, no. And he asked me several questions. My head was always, no, I don't have to deal with that. And he looked at me like, either you're lying or you're not, or you're not really a pastor. And I said, brother, I am blessed beyond my wildest imagination as a pastor. And I will pray for you that you don't have to deal with any more of those problems that you're having. And so uh, some may wonder what caused Paul to write these verses. You know, as I read this, I'm thinking, what caused Paul to write? There may have been some church members have been disrespectful toward the leaders. On the other hand, some leaders may have provoked this reaction by themselves being sort of heavy-handed and being overbearing toward the members. Paul Howard is rejecting both of these attitudes. Don't miss that. He's rejecting both of those attitudes. It's clear from the New Testament that it's God's will that the church have pastoral leadership. But it's not God's will that pastors dominate the members of the congregation. That is not God's will. Now you may be thinking, this passage doesn't say anything about pastors. You've probably read it and you're going, I don't see that word in there nowhere. It's true, the word pastor for sure is not in this verse. But notice three things here that help us to understand that this word could actually be here even though it's not. But notice the words, those who. Notice three things about them in verse 12. They do what? They labor and they are over you and they admonish you. Paul describes those in pastoral ministry as laborers. They work hard. Now you're probably saying, I know for sure that this verse is not talking about pastors. I know for sure that it can't be talking about pastors because it says they labor. It says they work hard. Some of you would uh, say uh, being a pastor means that you only work on Sunday. I was recently reading some, in, some material and it was sort of funny that uh, a pastor heard, overheard a wife talking to her husband. She said, I wish he was a pastor because he only has to work on Sunday and you could spend more time with your family. Um, but that's not the case. I have to be honest with you. The word Paul uses here means to toil, to strive, to struggle, to grow weary. And at this point, I'm not doing myself any favors by explaining to you the extent of that word. Paul is saying that true pastoral work is hard work. 1 Timothy 5.17 speaks of the pastor as laboring in preaching and teaching. He labors in his preaching and his teaching. Whether it is studying, preparing sermons, or, or visiting, or counseling those who are troubled, or instructing people for membership, or giving marriage counseling, or being diligent to be praying for the sheep. These things require that a pastor toil and strive with all the energy that he has. It's not physical labor, but it is labor nonetheless of a different kind. Secondly, Paul says that they are over you in the Lord. They are there to guide, they're there to shepherd, they're there to lead the congregation. And I want to say this, before a pastor can be over the people of God, before he can lead them, he must be under them as their servant. No pastor can ever be over his people and lead them until he is first under them as their servant. Where does that come from? Jesus, in Mark chapter 10... Verse 42 says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be among you. But whoever should be great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying that the chief characteristic of a leader, a pastor, the church leader is humility before authority. It's gentleness and not power. And yet, true servant leadership carries with it an element of authority. How do we know that? Hebrews chapter 13 says... And this will cause us all problems when I read this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. If I stopped right there, that would cause us problems, would it not? Obey your leaders and submit to them. But notice why. For they keep watch over your souls. Wow. How many of you want to keep watch over the souls of people? Paul says that's why we obey our leaders and submit to them because they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Uh Uh-oh. Not only do they watch over the souls, but they're going to give an account one day. And who are they going to give an account to? The chief shepherd. Then listen to what he says. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You know who, who reaps the the repercussions and the implications of not obeying and submitting to the leadership of the church and not helping Him do that with joy, who does that cause the biggest problem for? You. Notice how pastors are over the congregation in verse 12. Here's what's very important. In the Lord, true pastors, true shepherds are not self-appointed and their authority does not come from human beings. Because they're appointed by God, it's their duty to lead the people of God For the sake of who? Jesus. And never because they want power or prestige. A true pastor leads as a servant before he's in authority, but yet he is an authority given to him by God, and he's leading the people of God, watching over their souls, because he's going to get an account for one day, and he's doing all for the what? The sake of Jesus. That's what a true pastor does. He leads the sheep, not for his own prestige, his own power, his own benefit, but he leads them for the sake of Christ. Thirdly, it says pastors are to admonish there in verse 12. The word admonish means to hold the Word of God up and warn against wrong behavior. And the consequences that come from that wrong behavior. And to reprove, and even gently and with love and compassion, discipline those who fail to be Follow correction. Now I know that the words discipline and obey are negative words for most people today. You mention the words submit, obey, or authority, and guess what? Most people, will, they go deaf. They can't hear nothing you're saying. We live in a day and a time where authority and correction are... People look at that like you have lost your mind. You want me to obey and come under the authority and submit to someone. What we need to understand is that discipline... Here is from a biblical perspective. And it's always accompanied with instruction. The idea behind the word admonish is that a pastor, the pastor is charged with being in the position of authority under Jesus, is to correct wrong behavior and warn people against the consequences and direct them toward holy living. That's what it's talking about. So we have here three expressions which show us that Paul sees that there's a distinct person or persons or to lead the congregation. And they lead them how? In the Lord. That is the goal. That's the, that's the purpose. The pastors or pastors are entrusted with the oversight and the care of God's people. And they work hard and they serve the people of God in these areas. 
by admonishing them and leading them and instructing them. So we've seen that the response we've seen the responsibilities of the leaders. Now let's look at the attitude of the congregation toward those leaders. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. What is the attitude of the congregation? They're to respect their leaders, their pastors. Some translations use the word appreciate or recognize. The idea is that the people of God submit to the authority given to their, its leaders by God. It means praying that God will give them grace and wisdom to carry out their roles in leading the congregation. It means to value the office of pastor and be grateful to God that He has given leaders to its church. Have you ever been part of an organization that didn't have any leadership at all? It can be pretty hectic and chaos. God, in His grace, gave leaders to the church to lead the people of God. You, I've noticed in my, this in my own life. There seems to be this natural instinct within us that we always look for somebody to do what? Lead us. Do we not? In everything we do in life, we're always looking for someone to take charge and lead us. And God has put leadership within His church for that purpose. Notice second in verse 13. First, we're to respect them. Notice we're to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. The word esteem means to regard or to think about or to heed, to obey, and to submit. To esteem, to obey is not a forced obedience because of the position that the leader holds, but rather a reasoned obedience that comes from Scripture. It's about what the Word of God commands the people of God to do, not the person. That's the point that Paul is making here. And notice this is to be done how? Very highly and in love. Very highly has the idea of not being half-hearted. It means doing so in abundance. It points to the idea of doing something with excellence. And notice also in verse 13 why this is to be done. It's because of their work. It's the work that was mentioned in verse 12. Laboring, leading, and admonishing. In other words, it's not about the personality or the reputation or the education or the prominence of the leader. It's because they carry out the God-ordained responsibilities that's been given to them by the Lord Jesus. Pastors have been given these responsibilities by God to labor, to lead, and to admonish the church and that's the reason for respecting and esteeming them and loving them. And again, let me say here, I'm grateful to God that I'm a pastor of a church where people um, respect me, esteem me, and love me highly. And I am grateful to God for that. At the end of verse 13, Paul says, Be at peace among yourselves. If you're reading that, and all of a sudden you're like, What in the world is Paul doing? Why does he throw that in there at the end? It just doesn't seem to make any sense. The combination of pastors working hard and the congregation respecting and esteeming its pastors allows the pastors and the people to live in what? Peace with one another. When both the pastor and the congregation fulfill the God-ordained responsibilities, the church is what? It's unified, it's joyful, it's peaceful, as well as being a healthy, gospel-centered, gospel-focused congregation. Now you might be going, how can we apply this to our lives as the people of God? Being a little selfish here, here's what I would ask of you as application. Pray for me that God would give me the grace and wisdom to lead you. Pray that God would give me grace and wisdom to lead you. 
Pray that I would work hard in my sermon preparation, in my shepherding of the flock. Pray that I would be bold in admonishing, not with my opinions, but that I would admonish you with the Word of God. You might be saying, well, that's simple things that you can do. I need you to pray for me that I will be able to do these things. Both you and I have a responsibility to keep the peace. Paul said, be at peace among yourselves. Live in peace with each other. Let's move to verses 14 and 15 here. And we see that love is the evidence of being a gospel church. The evidence of being a gospel church is seeing how you relate to your pastors. But second, the evidence of being a gospel church is seen in how you relate to different kinds of church members. How you relate to different kinds of church members. And some of you are probably thinking, I didn't know there was more than one kind. But Scripture is going to show us that there are. He says, and we urge you, brothers, and here it comes, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Paul is urging the Thessalonians, as well as, again, us today, how we respond properly to every different kind of church member. Notice I said... uh, Well, I said church member. I meant to say family member. How we respond differently to every family member. There are different ways to respond to different kind of members in the local congregation. How many, those of you here have more than one child, you have figured out that you've got to respond to each one of them probably in a different way, right? This one doesn't respond to you the way this one does, and it takes you a little while to figure that out. But once you figure it out, that's what you do, right? It's the same way with church members. Notice first Paul says, admonish the idol. Idle is a military term referring to somebody who's out of step with the other guys marching in rank. Out of step with everybody else. I remember being in boot camp. I've never seen such a difficult thing in all my life trying to get 70 guys to march together and not get out of step. It was absolutely hilarious for a few days until we learned that we would do push-ups in 100 degree weather until we learned to march. Man, the drill instructor, he came along. He got us in line. He got us, he admonished the idol. He got us in line. In a few days, different people from all over the United States were marching in step with one another and actually could sing together as we marched. He admonished the idol. And Paul says, what you need to do is admonish the idol in the congregation. It's the same word that Paul used in verse 12. What are the pastors, the leaders of church supposed to do? They're supposed to admonish the people of God. They're supposed to hold the Word of God up before the people of God and say, this is a standard that you follow to live your Christian life. But did you notice that Paul is saying that the whole congregation is supposed to do that to one another? Don't just leave it to the pastors. We as a congregation are to be exhorting one another in this way. We're to be admonishing one another. The idea is that we're to to put sense into one another's heads. You ever thought of it that way? We're to put sense in one another's heads and alert one another to the consequences of our actions. Now this doesn't mean that we're judgmental or we're critical or we're thinking we're superior to another person. Instead, it's a caring, kind, loving, warning action that takes place when you admonish another brother in Christ. Notice second, he says, encourage the faint-hearted. Notice it's not admonish the faint-hearted. Right? He said admonish the idle. But now he's saying encourage the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted here may refer to um, those people at the end of chapter 4, if you'll remember we studied there, who were struggling because what? 
Their loved ones had died. Jesus was coming back. They're, they're faint-hearted. They're struggling. They're wondering what's going to happen. And we talked about that and how Paul encouraged them and, and, and exhorted us to encourage one another with the Word of God in the, with those issues. As well as those in chapter 5 who are struggling. Remember in chapter 5 there were people struggling who were believers. When Jesus comes back, they were fearful of what? They knew judgment was coming. And they were fearful of that. But Paul exhorted them and encouraged them. If you're in Christ, you have nothing to worry about when Jesus comes back. Because you are out from under the judgment because of what Christ has done to redeem you. Paul says, encourage and comfort the faint-hearted with the truth from Scripture concerning these matters. We have people in the congregation, all churches, all congregations have people who are faint-hearted. We are to come alongside them and to encourage them with the Word of God. Notice thirdly there, Paul says, help the weak. Uh, The weak can refer to people who are spiritually immature. All congregations are going to have people who are spiritually immature. New believers are spiritually immature. Some believers who have been believers for several years can be spiritually immature. Or it may be those who are struggling with sin in their lives. But notice Paul doesn't say what? If they can't get with it, just kick them out. Is that what he says? No. Help the weak. Hold on to them. Cling to them. Put your arms around them and help those who are immature. Have you ever thought of doing that with an immature believer who's struggling? To come alongside them and say, Hey brother, I'm not superior to you, but if there's any way I can help you walk closer to Jesus, I'm willing to do that. Help the weak. We are to do these three things with one another. In other words, we're looking out for one another. We're looking out for family. All of you look out for your family, right? Paul's saying we do that with the people of God. We're concerned about one another's spiritual well-being. It's not that we're busybodies. It's not that we're, you know, big brothers and we've got cameras on everybody watching everyone. But we care enough about one another to engage one another about the important things in the Christian life. Notice in verse 14, the last thing that Paul says, Be patient with them all. Uh-oh. I must be patient with the entire congregation? No. You must be patient with the entire family. Even who? The weird uncles. That one hurts, doesn't it? Be patient. Because patience is something that we really struggle with at times, right? We all struggle with that. Some of you may be saying, it can be really hard to be patient with some people, right? You're right now. I know. I can see your. If I can see your brains, I can see the wheels clicking. There's people going through your mind. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know that. Oh, yeah, really, him. It's hard to be patient with him. You know. And some of us, you know, I've had conversations with people who would say this. You know, I'm just an impatient person. That's the way I am, and there's nothing I can do about that. And that's just that's just who I am. And people just need to get with it and take me as I am. What is that doing? You're excusing. Your sin is what you're doing. Are you ready for a biblical response to that kind of attitude? By saying that you are just an impatient person, you're saying that I'm unloving. That's what you're saying. Because Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, says love is what? Patient. So when you're impatient, you're actually showing a lack of love because patience is an expression of love. When you are being patient with someone who is very difficult to be patient with, you are expressing love to them. Biblical love is a Christian. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. It's 
says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So how do we deal with one another? We're patient because the Lord was what? Patient with us. And so patience is overarching in our dealing with one another. Look at verse 15. Here Paul tells us how to have a family of mercy and forgiveness and kindness. He actually moves from a particular group. You know, he's talking about particular groups of people in verse 14. Now he's moving to general behavior in verse 15. See that no one repays evil for evil. Excuse me. See that no one repays anyone. Is anyone left out when you use the word anyone? No. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. First Paul says, see that no one repays evil, or excuse me, anyone evil for evil. Christians must not deal with one another by means of retaliation or payback. The words there, see that or see to it means to make sure. Make sure that No one, none of you, pays back wrong for wrong. Paul says that the Christian's way of responding to being wrong, to being sinned against, is not to get even. Instead, the way we respond is to be merciful and even to show forgiveness. Obeying this means that the people of God are characterized by forgiveness. Real forgiveness. And I know as I say that, I... I'm there with you. The tendency is when someone wrongs us is to what? Get even. I'm going to pay back. How many of you ever had somebody do you wrong and for days you would plot and come up with a scheme as to how you're going to get them back? And your plot and your plan changed every day because you think, that's not enough. I need to do that. And you, and you, you spend your day plotting and planning revenge. What, I, what am I getting at by saying real forgiveness? Real forgiveness hurts, does it not? It hurt. It's costly because we can really be hurt by another believer. And Paul says when that happens, the way you are to deal with one another is not by getting even, but it's by being what? Merciful. This is biblical. One, because Paul is telling us here, but there are other places. Let me share with you from Matthew chapter 7. Don't turn there, jot this down. Verses 3 through 5. This is a very familiar passage to most of us. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is, a, there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Most of us have heard that, right? And right away we're going, uh, I don't need to get the, the speck out of his eye because i got a log in my eye. We, we, we get that, right? That's part of what's going on here. Here's something else I learned from a very godly person years ago in studying these verses. Here's another thing that we're we're being told here by Jesus. When someone sins against you, that is a speck. When you sin back in retaliation, that's a log. And here's what that means. As a Christian... When someone sins against you and you respond back to them sinfully, your sin is bigger than their sin. Because you knew they sinned against you and you did what? 
You retaliated with sinful actions toward them. That's what he's telling us here. Speck versus law. First Peter chapter 2, verse 23. Talking about Jesus. How many of you want to be like Jesus? If you're a Christian, you better raise your hand, okay? You want to be like Jesus, right? When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Jesus didn't respond evil for evil, did He not? But what did He do? He entrusted Himself to who? The one who will judge one day. All followers of Jesus are forbidden from personal revenge and retaliation against other believers when they sin against us. Verse 15. But always seek to do good to one another. Here Paul is talking about us demonstrating kindness toward one another. It's actually us thinking, how can I do good to my fellow brothers and sisters? How can I do good to my family? This is just like Jesus, who himself, remember, refused to do what? Revile. He... When he was reviled and he came not to be served, but to serve others. The church, Christians, are to be so gospel saved that when we're sinned against, we don't what? We don't respond with sin, but we seek to do what? Do good. When sinned against, the Christian's primary goal is not himself. Instead, it's the welfare of the other person. And I know, as I'm preaching this to you, that is so hard for us to do, right? When someone sins against us, to do good back to them instead of sinning against them. But notice again in verse 15 that this idea extends beyond the church. This is where it gets really tough. But always seek to do good to one another and to who? Everyone. Uh Uh-oh. It's not just my family members within the church, but I'm to extend mercy and grace and kindness toward who? Everyone, when an unbeliever sins against you, you do not respond with revenge and retaliation. It's not just doing good to one another, it's doing good to the lost world around us as well. And I'm going here's a practical illustration. I think this, and you're going to be going, this is absolutely, this doesn't fit. But I think it does. A simple issue in how we treat other people who may not be believers. When they do something against us and we respond by retaliating against them, this is just a simple, practical thing. I've done it. I'm not going to say most of you have done it, but you've probably been there, and we'll see if it's the case. How many of you have been to a restaurant before, and the waitress didn't keep your tea glass full, they got your order wrong, maybe they spilled water on you, and everything went wrong. And when it came time to leave a tip, you did what? I'll show them. You leave a quarter or a dollar on the table. Right? And you might be going, really? That's us responding sinfully toward that person because they did what? Something as simple as not keeping our tea glass full or getting our food order right. Do you know that says more about you than it says about the person who wronged you? Absolutely, Christian. That says more about you as a Christian than it does about the person whom you're doing it to. It says that you are an unforgiving person. It says that you're more more important than the person who failed to keep your tea glass filled. 
Really? A tea glass not staying full? We want to respond sinfully towards someone that we might be killing the chance to share the gospel with? The gospel, the forgiveness of your sin against God should motivate you to forgive others and do good to them. This is very important for us to keep in mind because as evangelical Christians, and I'm not being a prophet here, but as evangelical Christians, every day that goes by, we're becoming hated more and more and more by a lost world. It will be our tendency to do what? Get mad and pay evil back for evil. Will it not? The more they begin to hate us and come against us, what will our tendency be? To get even and to get back. Instead, our attitude toward a lost world is that we want to do good to you. It doesn't matter whether you like us. It doesn't matter whether you hate us. We want to do good to you because Jesus did good to us when we did bad to Him. We want to do good to you because Jesus did good to us when we didn't deserve it. And when we were rebelling against Him, He died for us and He saved us by shedding His blood that we might be forgiven. Church, Redbud Baptist Church, we want to reflect the same kind of goodness and kindness and love to a lost world around us that Jesus showed to us. Can you imagine if Jesus had responded to us in the way that we responded to Him? Where would we be? Where would a lost world be if we respond to them evil for evil instead of showing them good? You may be saying, I think we've done a pretty good job of this. I would agree. My question for you is, do you want to do a pretty good job for Jesus or do you want to grow in your forgiveness and doing good toward others more than what you already are? Is just doing pretty good good enough? Or is there room for improvement in our lives to do good toward our fellow believers and even do good toward those who are lost? Showing them the mercy and the grace of God that's been shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.